morning. <clears throat> uh, it is great to see you, to be with you. If you don't know me, um, I'm Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. Most of the time, I am over with um, our middle and high schoolers, and uh, this morning I get to be with you guys. I'll still be with them tonight, but, you know, I'll be with you guys now, so this is going to be fun for a while. Um, sometimes when I come in, um, I'm always thinking about weird things, primarily because I am the youth pastor, okay? And um, that goes with the prerequisite. Both Jess and I are the youth pastors. We're different. We're weird. It's okay. Um, you can go with it today. And the reason that we're going to, I say that is because we're going to start at a very strange place today that we don't normally start in church. Um, I want you to raise your hand if you like professional wrestling. Raise your hand if you like professional wrestling, okay? Four of you. How many of you know what professional wrestling is? Okay, great. All right, so you at least know what it is. We're going to start there today, all right? Um, now, I think, it's, I think it's still around. I think it's still like on TV. I heard the other day that they're like merging professional wrestling with UFC fighting. That should be interesting because professional wrestling is fake and UFC is not, right? So we know who's going to win, right? So that's going to be weird. Um, so I found this funny quote that was written about professional wrestling, and it says this. It says this. It's pretty good. It says, tonight, the arena is sold out. A dozen shades of gray will square off in a pageantry of war. The opponents are unlikely in the real world, but in the amphitheater of our imagination, they're well-matched. The punk rockers will battle the mountain men. Actual boxers will fight the post-apocalyptic warriors. The gangbangers will rumble with the aristocrat. The future will struggle with the past, and the living will duel with the dead. In the end, just like a good soap opera, no issues will be resolved. <laughs> That's pretty good, right? Um, the story is to be continued. The combatants will live to fight another night in another town. Is wrestling fake? Absolutely. It's as fake as your imagination, as phony as your daydreams. Um, so yeah, you know, a lot of professional wrestling is fake, but do you remember the characters? Do you remember this guy, Hulk Hogan, right? Everyone remembers Hulk Hogan, right? Wow. We're, we're clapping for Hulk in church. Okay. I love it. Um, remember he had this one phrase. He'd be like, all right, brothers, I'm going to have to put you in the herd locker or something like that. Right. And I know I look like Hulk. So you're like, that was exactly right on. Okay. Um, so we had Hulk Hogan. He was a crazy guy, right? Remember this guy? Stone Cold Steve Austin. Stone Cold, right? You just were afraid to even say his name. It was so scary, okay? Um, he was another one. Did you know for a while he went by different names? He went by Stunning Steve Austin, okay? And Superstar Steve Austin, you know? But Stone Cold's more fearsome, right? That's the way to go. Okay, um, we all know this guy. The Rock, right? We all know that The Rock, Rock has been everything. He's been a professional football player. I guess he's an actor. Okay. I hope he doesn't come in right now because he snapped me in half like a, okay. Um, uh, he was, you know, he was a professional wrestler for a while. This was a weird guy, Ric Flair. Wow. There's too many of you that like him. That? Wow. Um, he wore a lot of feathers. That's all I remember. Okay. Flair, right? Flair. Okay. And now my all-time favorite right here, Andre the Giant, right? Let's, let's hear it for Andre, right? Um, 
you know, he wrestled, but my, the thing that endures him to me is his appearance in The Princess Bride, right? No one was better. I mean, it was such a good movie. There was weird stuff happening, but he was the best, right? Okay. Um, there's one more wrestler that I want to tell you about this morning, okay? And his name is Nestor. Here's a picture of him, okay? Um, it's the, oh, now, this is not an actual picture of this guy, Nestor, but this is, this is how I would imagine him in today's world, okay? Um, this is more of the wrestlers, the high school kind of wrestling or college wrestling that we're used to, right? And, and wrestlers were more like Nestor, this guy, um, than they were Hulk Hogan, right? Most of them were skinny. They were always trying to lose weight. I had friends in high school who were wrestlers, and they would wear trash bags and run two miles to drop nine pounds before their match right? Um, they were just kind of skinny and little guys. And this real-life guy named Nestor that I want to tell you about, we're just going to leave him up there for a little while. Um, he was that way, okay? Um, so this is not the actual Nestor, but this is kind of what he looked like. This was his representation of his size, okay? Um, he's small, right? And unlike all the other wrestlers that we know about in WWF and all that, um, he was not in it for the money, okay? He was not in it for the money. He was not in it for the fame, okay? He actually became a wrestler by mistake, right? He never wanted to be a wrestler. No one, believe me, no one was asking him to wrestle. It was not his intended path in life, but his allegiances and his loyalty and his devotion led him to the spot where he had to step into an actual wrestling ring, okay? Here's a couple of other things we know about him, all right? He was small, he was not obligated to get into the wrestling ring. He was loyal, incredibly loyal. He was brave, okay? Um, he was willing to go against the odds. He was an underdog, and he was incredibly devoted. And here's how his story goes, all right? Um, he had a mentor, someone that he really, really trusted, and then we're gonna meet him in a second, and his name was Demetrios. And Demetrios was the leader of a great city, okay? And even though his boss, Demetrios's boss, didn't like his style or how he related to people or how he treated them, um, Demetrios did it anyway, and he was respected for it. He had real friendships. He had real relationships. He cared about people, and his boss didn't care about any of that stuff. Um, Nestor watched and learn from Demetrios, okay? You could say that Demetrios was his mentor. He showed him how to be a decent person. Um, he, as mentioned by him, uh, he was even more devoted to the same things that Demetrios was devoted to. So they were aligned in their character, in their, um, who they were as people. But the boss, okay, the boss didn't like any of this. And one day, um, the boss of Demetrios comes to town just to start trouble, all right? So he comes to town just to start trouble. And his way of doing this that he did all over the place in places where he wanted to start trouble was he would build a huge wrestling ring, okay? He would build a big wrestling ring that was high off the ground where his champion, this guy named Laios, would come and take on all challengers. But the boss would force the closest friends of the people who were close to Demetrios to get into the ring and fight, even if they weren't qualified. 
One by one, they would get into the ring. They would fight this guy, Laios, lose and be tossed out of the ring, which is really high off the ground, and they would fall to the ground below. Many of them would die. Now, this wasn't only just horrible for these people that had to fight, but it was insulting to Demetrios, who was supposed to be in charge, right? To have his boss come to town, ridicule who he was, how he lived, and what he was about before the whole city. Now, Nestor is super upset by this, okay? He sees this going on. He's upset about it for the same reasons that Demetrios is upset about it. Um, he thinks it's very disrespectful, and it damages the character of Demetrios and what he stood for. So as this is all happening, right, as these people are being forced into the wrestling ring to fight Laios, um, Nestor decides, I'm going to go fight him. Right? And you can almost imagine that he comes up to the, to the ring, this big ring, right? Um, and he's this little guy. You can almost imagine that he's not even seen at first. Like he's like, I want to fight, I want to fight. And it's like a little kid. And they're like, who's this little kid? You know, he, he's not going to do anything. And finally they recognize him, right? And they put him in the ring with this big, tall champion named Laios. And he wrestles him and he fights him. And finally, Nestor beats Laios, okay? And even though he's so small, so much smaller than this champion Laios, he picks him up and he throws him out of the wrestling ring to the ground to his death. The boss becomes so enraged when he finds out about this that he has Nestor and Demetrios killed. Nestor, Nestor knew this going in. He knew that if he went in and did this, this was likely going to be his fate. Now, if Nestor's story sounds, sounds familiar to you at all, it's because it is familiar to us, all right? Um, after all this happened, this true story happened, they began to call Nestor the new David, okay? They began to call him the new De David. He lived sometime 300 years after the death of Christ, all right? Um, and just as David was willing to risk everything for his faith, so was Nestor, okay? Remember the David story in 1 Samuel? It starts with Goliath saying something like this. He said to David, am I a dog that you come with me at sticks? Remember this? You know, he's like taunting him, right? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. He said, come here, he said, I'll give you to the flesh I'll give your flesh to the birds and to the wild animals. And David responds to the Philistine. He says something like this. He says, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, right? So it's 100% clear that David, his motivation and his belief and his hope is in God, right? And Nestor was the very same way, okay? Um, now here's an image of what Nestor really looked like. Okay, here he is. All right. This is the real Nestor. Okay. Now, what I hope you're thinking about and what I hope you're asking at this point is, you know, why, why did, why did Nestor do this? You know, he didn't have to. He wasn't being forced into that ring. Why did he do it? Why was he so devout, devoted to Demetrios and care about the same things that Demetrios cared about? 
We're told that it was St. Nestor's belief in the God of Demetrius who was Jesus Christ. Nestor was fully devoted, a fully devoted follower of Christ. Demetrios was a fully devoted follower of Christ. And Demetrios invested in Nestor's life and mentored him and showed him the way of God and taught him in the way of the cross. And, and they were both very, very devoted to this, okay? And we're told that Nestor defeated, um, defeated finally defeated the big Laos giant with one mortal blow, just like David who slung the stone, right? Um, now, this is Demetrios, okay? This is Demetrios. Let me tell you a little bit about him, okay? His parents were secret Christians, all right? Um, they loved Jesus, but because of the times that they lived in and where they were and everything that was happening, they were secret followers of Jesus. They weren't out there declaring who Jesus was, but they trained Demetrius in the way they, they, they showed him how to be a follower of Christ. Um, they worshiped Jesus at their home. Okay. Um, Demetrius though was different. He his dad was an important person. And because of that, in those times he became an important person, so much so that he became in charge of this city, right? He became in charge of this city, and he rose to a place of power, and instead of being like his parents on this one thing, he decided not to hide his devotion and love for Jesus. He says, I'm not going to hide that in any way, and he began to teach the people where he lived about Christ, okay? Um, he made his following of Christ, even more central to who he was when he was put into a place of prominence where he had influence, where he could tell people about who Christ was. He was told in his position to do the exact opposite. His boss told him, the Christians are a problem. Eradicate them in this city. Get rid of them. But he did the opposite. He taught the faith openly and he gave away his wealth to help other people where he lived. Why? Again, his devotion to Christ was the most important thing for him. Meet one other person. This is Matrona, okay? This is Matrona. Again, another faithful follower of Christ who was the slave of a Jewish woman. She was beaten and forced for days to, to sit inside of a small closet because of her faith, all right? This is Heliconus. Her bold act for Christ was her refusal to worship any statues or idols, right? That was a big thing in these days. The Romans had their, their, their small G gods, right? And they had these statues and you had to, they were represented by these deities and everyone was expected to worship them. But she says, no, I will not do that and, and even destroyed some of them. And this is Jason. Jason was a Jewish convert to Christianity, okay? Um, like many people at the time, he heard the message of Jesus um, through some of the apostles, through some of the disciples, the followers of Christ, and decided to follow Jesus. He, he opened his home to the apostle Paul, who we know spent his life journeying around and talking to people about Christ. And Jason opened his home to Paul. And because of that, he was arrested. All right. Um, he was arrested, nearly jailed. 
all because he loved Jesus too. Now, all of these people that you've met this morning, they have one, and they have actually two things in common I want to talk about. One is this, the obvious. They love Jesus, right? They really love Jesus, and they were willing to risk just about anything to stay true to that. They loved him, and they would risk anything. The other thing that they have in common that we're going to spend more time on today, along with who they were and why they loved Jesus, is a special city, okay? Along the coast of Greece, where their faith was born, nurtured, where it matured, and where it spread from. And that's the city of Thessalonica, okay? Thessalonica was this major port city of Greece, okay? A hub of culture and commerce, just like Alexandria down here in Fairfax, you know, no, it's something like that, okay? Think of it that way. Put that in your mind, all right? This hub of culture, this, this major city on the water, okay? Now, Paul had visited there um, during his second missionary journey. This is around 50 AD, where he established groups of new followers there. Um, and that success, though, was not without pretty extreme hardship, okay? Paul experienced significant backlash from the people of the region, especially um, the Jewish critics, okay? Um, despite suffering the persecution of faith, though, it seems that that church in Thessalonica flourished, right? The message took hold in a special way. What Paul had to say and what he taught and what he lived out took root there in an incredible way, in a notable way, so much so that here we are thousands of years later and we can look at this book, we can tear it apart, we can dive into it, we can read those chapters and we can walk away with some important things because it fascinated me. What was it about what got born out of that city that, that lived so long and, and propelled so many people to be so devout and want to follow Christ no matter what? Because I wanna know what that is. I want that to be part of who I am, and I think that could be part of who we all are, right? And so um, in 1 Thessalonians, which we're going to be focusing on on the next couple of weeks, okay, we're going to talk about 1 Thessalonians the next couple of weeks. Um, it's a letter that was written by Paul to the followers that live there, okay? Paul seems thrilled to hear the good news, uh, right, about how things are going, about their growth in Christ. These believers are not only thriving spiritually, they're working hard to spread the gospel to the rest of the world. And the opening chapter is relatively short. It's only 10 verses, but it sets the tone for the rest of what um, Paul's letter is gonna be about, okay? Now, before we jump into those verses in 1 Thessalonians, um, we're gonna go back a little bit to the book of Acts, which talks about Paul's missionary journeys, right? And in Acts 17, we get the story of Paul's first trip there, okay? And I wanna read it. Um, you can read it on the screen if you have a Bible that you prefer to read out of. It's Acts chapter 17, verses one through nine. It just gives us some really good context of, of what happened, okay? What was going on when Paul went, right? So it says this. It says, was Paul and his companions had passed through um, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining 
and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house, Jason who you met. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out into the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So Paul and Silas and his followers come in and they're talking to people about Jesus and people are hearing the word and not only hearing it, but in a special way, in a stronger way than we see in many places Paul traveled, um, people were soaking that in and converting left and right, Greeks, Jews, the important women of that city um, who were taking in the, the, what Paul had to say, this, this good news, this hope about Christ and, and taking it and living it and running with it. But the tension gets so high that Paul has to leave or probably be arrested or killed, all right? So he leaves, and we know from his letter that he writes later that it's a painful thing for him, right? He loved, he loved this people so much. Think about this idea of, you know, you've devoted your life to spread this word, to pour this love of Christ out of yourself, and people are receptive to it. <laughs> And so he had this incredible um, experience there. And so he really didn't want to leave and he loved it so much, but he had to go, right? This letter in 1 Thessalonians is an attempt to sort of reconnect with the Christians there. Um, after he got this report from Timothy, Timothy was this younger follower um, and he knew Paul and Paul said, I can't go back there. Why don't you go and see how things are going? And Timothy began to report to him that things were going pretty well, all right? Um, and even though, even though they were fighting, the persecution didn't go away, but they kept the message in their hearts and kept living it out. Now, the contrast um, there was, was pretty stark, right? There was persecution, but there was the flowing of Christ, okay? And it made an impression on Paul. He was just overwhelmed by that. And the primary message of this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians is that Paul had heard good things about the church of the region. And this is what he writes, okay? We're gonna look at 1 Thessalonians again. It's up on the screen. Um, if you wanna read it in your Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter one, verses one to 10, all right? And here's what Paul says in this letter. This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We are writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you grace and peace. We always thank God for all, all of you and pray for you constantly. We pray to our God and Father about you. We think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope 
you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. For when we, bought you, when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. As a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece throughout both Macedonia and Achaia. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For whoever we go, for wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to, to sever the living, to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. There's a whole bunch of stuff in this, some that we can get into today and some that we can't. Some things that we're not gonna go into in depth, but that are important was just notice what Paul says about how um, how seriously they took the message and how seriously they, they lived it and how eager they were to spread it. Paul said he would go places and go, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. And they go, actually, we heard about that from the people of Thessalonica. <laughs> and Paul is amazed by this. He's stunned by this, right? It keeps happening to him and he, he remarks on it and he tells them, hey, this is my experience with who you are. And so what's interesting about that to me is, is that um, we see that, that pattern copied and extended in those folks that I told you about this morning, you know, through, through Nestor and through um, Demetrios and these people that for some reason they, they just took in who Christ was and what the message was and the hope associated with it, lived it despite the circumstances and despite what might come at them, not only lived it, but spread it. The message that Paul basically writes here in this first chapter, it's only a few verses, is this, is that following Jesus produces a countercultural, holy way of life. When you follow Jesus, it produces in you something that's different from what's happening around us. Something that's elevated to holy status, and I'm always blown away that God calls and says that we can be holy, right? Not holy as in a deity like him, but a holiness that flows through us from Christ. The book shows Paul, you know, giving thanks and celebrating the Thessalonians' faith and love for others and their hope in Jesus despite the persecution that they're feeling. He talks about the story of their conversion, right? How they used to worship um, the God of the day, just kind of going along with culture that was dominated by the Roman institutions and the Roman gods. And Paul talks about how they turned away from these idols to serve the living God and that they're continuing to live out of that. And in a city like Thessalonia, okay, transferring your allegiance away from 
what was expected of you because of the government um, was very, very difficult. It came at a very, very high cost. Some of them seemed small in comparison to the possibility of death, but they were still really difficult. Things like isolation from your neighbors, um, hostility from your own family. But for the Thessalonians, this overwhelming love of Jesus who died for them and the hope of his return made it all worth it. Paul then tells the story again about his mission there and the friendships that he gathered. I absolutely love, I wish, I almost, I almost tried to get Josh to switch with me. Josh is gonna be here next week. He's getting Second Thessalonians. Um, I love Second Thessalonians. You're like, wow, that's weird. Okay, but here's why. All right, 2 Thessalonians um, has this verse in it. I'm sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 has this verse in it that in our student ministry, it's what we base every one of our small groups on. It's all about what our small groups with students is supposed to be about. And here's what it says. It says, we loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our lives too. And for us, and for what that means is this, we want to be in small groups with students where, where we are their mentors and we are helping them understand scripture and how to live it out and who Christ was and all that. But if we neglect the relationship, the connection of leaders to students and students to each other, then we don't get anywhere, right? And that one short set of verses ties it up for us. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives as well, right? And, and there's so much more that goes through First Thessalonians. But what I want to spend the rest of our time on this morning are three words that Paul uses, okay, in verse three. That will become central to many of the books that he will leave us with, many of the letters that he writes, right, and central to his teaching, okay? And this is likely the very first time that Paul penned these, let, these words, okay? Thessalonians, we're told, is probably the first book, first letter that he wrote that got out there, okay? And here's the chapter, here's the verse three. It says this. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have, you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, love, hope. You can't read anything that Paul wrote and not see these themes show up or these words show up, right? These were the three things about the Christians in Thessalonica that Paul simply could not forget, he said. He always remembered them. What he remembered about them made him incredibly thankful. Paul's gratitude didn't, become, didn't come because the Thessalonian Christians were morally impeccable. They were not. As we read more through First and Second Thessalonians, we see Paul over and over giving instructions about morality, okay? Paul's gratitude didn't come because the Thessalonian Christians were completely accurate in every piece of doctrine. They were not. Paul, time and time again, would remind them what was accurate. Paul was so grateful to God for the Thessalonians because there was an undeniable work of the Holy Spirit and a marvelous change in their lives. They went from one thing to the other simply and only because of the person of Christ and the Holy Spirit working in their lives. 
the great three virtues of Paul mentioned here, faith, love, and hope. But his stress on these virtues isn't just about like the words. We're going to talk about the words in a minute, right? And what they mean, but also what they produced, right? What they produced. Um, There's a theologian, his name is Scott Swain. And he said this, he goes, the virtues of faith, hope, and love are a profound and biblical summary of the moral direction of the Christian life. The virtues glorify God and benefit our neighbors. Think about that for a second. If you live out faith, love, and hope, if you live those out, you're glorifying this God that we say we love, that we serve, who died for us on the cross. You know, we're, we're living that out. And at the same time, when we live those things out, the benefit is to others, our neighbors, those around us, faith, hope, and love. Paul says this, he says, their faith produced work, right? Their faith produced work. The true nature of faith produced work. Their love produced labor, right? Uh, meaning they got in there and, and they got messy and they got into the meeting of people's needs. And then it says their hope produced patience, which is the long-suffering endurance needed to not only survive hard times, but to triumph through them. Let's talk a little bit more about each one of these verses to wrap up. Faith, faith is confidence or trust in a person or thing, belief that isn't based on proof, right? Belief that isn't based necessarily on proof. Paul in his letters, he characterizes faith in a couple of ways, okay? Sometimes it means it's an obeying faith, right? That faithfulness or loyalty. First Thessalonians emphasizes this dimension of faith, okay? Second, the word faith can mean a believing faith. That is to say that, you know, it expresses the, the Christian worldview as distinct from other things. You know, if you look at First and Second Corinthians, other books penned by Paul, um, he's challenging the church to lay aside um, the perspective and values of the world and take on a different Jesus world view. And then the term faith also from Paul can mean a trusting faith, where, where faith stands for something like Christianity, Christ, and the Christian life. It's the kind of faith that Paul introduces to the Thessalonian church and was lived out so well and so deeply by its followers. Hope, hope is something that lifts us out of our experience. You know, it's almost physical. Like we're in an experience, but we get lifted out of that. That's, that's hope. It's, it's to cherish something that you really, really want with anticipation. Not having hope can make us feel less than satisfied, stuck. Like life is just random with, with bad things lurking around the corner, right? You know, we feel hopeless when there's a big gap between our experience and the dreams that we have. We don't feel really passionate about anything. When we experience pain or anxiety or stress, those are all these signs of a lack of hope. But there's a couple of things that I know about hope. 
There's a couple of things I know about it. One is that I really want it. Two is that everybody needs it. And the third one is that not everybody has it. Hope. See, hope, hope is more than optimism. Right? We can't just forever thrive in life by just kind of putting on a smile. No one can ever last through their life with just that. Right? It's not just optimism, and it's not just wishful thinking, right? That can just be in our heads. Hope is different. It's something that lifts us up out of our experience. Optimism and wishful thinking are okay, but they have a huge problem, right? They're passive. They don't actually change anything. It reminds me of the part of the Bible that says this. It says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? Just wishing someone well who doesn't have any food or clothes does not give anybody hope. Hope is different. It's, it's to cherish something that you really want with anticipation that God is going to meet that need often through us. Love, to have love or affection for another person. That's what love is, to have love or affection for another person. Um, one of my study Bibles says it really well. It says this. It says, love wraps us up in the embrace of God and others. It's the indispensable mark of Christian life. The measure and test of love to God is wholehearted obedience. The measure and test of love to our neighbors is laying down our lives for them. You know, Paul makes it very clear in one of his letters in 1 Corinthians, the big love book, that the greatest of these three is love. Based on this, we know that love, love is the result when we practice faith and when we practice hope. Love is the result of those things. Love is the goal, right? And the purpose of love, there's a couple of them. Let me mention two. Um, it's the revelation of identity, right? It, it tells us who God is and who we are to God. And we find our identity in God because he created us, he knows us better than we know ourselves, and he says that we're his. He created us, he knows us better than ourselves, and he says we are his. His love never fails, it never lets us down, it never changes, it's always constant, it's always there. Every other thing, every other person in our lives will eventually let us down, despite the best motives, except for God. And being God's beloved expresses the core truth of who we are, our existence. Our, our identity is in God. And in God's eyes, you know, we're worthy of being loved all the time, no matter what. He sees us as redeemed in Christ. We don't have to do anything to win his love, not one single thing. It's a free gift available to us. 
God already knows who we are, what's going on with us, regardless of the contradictions that we hear from maybe other people in our lives. You, you, I, we are God's. Intimately loved by him. Unconditionally loved by him. And the second thing that's just true about love is this, is that um, the very power, it's the very power that allows us to do the work of Jesus in the world. If Christ lives, our lives should be marked by faith, hope, and love. Those ideas, those concepts, the beginnings of those thoughts lived out through Christ who worked through Paul that Paul took and spread that were then adopted by others who lived them out, took them and spread them around as well are the things that we have access to now, the things that you live out of and the things that we can help others understand and live out of as well. I think it's going to be an important and incredible journey to go through this book together in this time right after Easter where we get to dive into these concepts of faith, hope, and love, move through them and understand maybe in a new and fresh way what they mean for our lives. Will you pray with me? God, this morning I would pray that as we contemplate these concepts, these virtues, faith and love and hope, that we would maybe look at a fresh way of what they mean, whether or not we understand them, whether or not we live out of them, whether or not we have the tools to make them central to our lives. Lord, I pray for each and every person in this place that we would, um, we, would, we would read about them, we would see how they were lived out, how we may mimic the person of Christ in how he lived them out and how they were taught. Lord, I pray that we would learn something new, be changed in important ways that will allow us to live out the gospel every single day. So God, we love you. We thank you for your word. Pray that you work in our hearts. We lift all these things up. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.